Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Well, we are continuing our series this morning on practicing the way of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verse 1, and we will pick up there in a moment. Uh, Each week in this series, we'll be unpacking a different practice from the life of Jesus that we can engage in to make us more like Him. Uh, Last week, we unpacked the practice of being filled with the Spirit uh, as something that we seek on a daily basis. And this morning, we are continuing in our series with the practice of community. Little is known about the first few decades of Jesus' life. Uh, We have a ton of information on his birth. Uh, We get one story from his childhood, which is actually captured here in Luke chapter 2. And then there's radio silence. For decades, we hear nothing. Uh, The first real glimpse that we get is when Jesus comes on the scene to be baptized. And the Gospels tell us that he's anointed with the Spirit, that he's led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, to be tempted by Satan. He triumphs over Satan there in the Eremos, in the solitary place, and then he officially launches his public ministry in the power of the Spirit. But one of the things that Jesus does very early on in his ministry is to select disciples or apprentices who are going to come along for the journey. He selects a community of people to come around him. Here is just one account of how he goes about that. This is Luke chapter 5. It says, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've been working hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed after him. 
the disciples left everything to follow after Jesus. There's a cost. But when I look at the cost, I typically think of the material and the economic cost. They left their boats, their livelihood, which by many accounts was a lucrative business. They left their careers, their financial security to follow Jesus into the unknown, which is true and inspiring. But in their day and age, there was actually a higher cost involved. And that was the cost of leaving family. In the ancient Near East, and in almost every culture, in every time and place throughout all of human history, the family has been of vital importance. We live in this strange little bubble of modern Western thinking in which the individual is more important than the larger group. But for 90-some percent of all humans who have ever lived, the reverse was actually true. The uh, good of the group or the good of the family was actually more important than that of the individual. And this is still true in much of the world. The family, and by that I really mean the extended family, was a unit that functioned as a, as a tight-knit community in which each person put the needs of the whole above their own needs. Now, seen from our little bubble, this seems weird and backward and suffocating because we live in a hyper-individualistic society, the likes of which has never been seen before on earth, and the fruit of which is actually rather alarming. By all measurable standards, our hyper-individualism is making us anxious, lonely, and miserable. Skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety. Shocking percentages of loneliness and isolation. And in the digital age, we're only throwing fuel on that fire. Studies are showing we're actually losing our ability to make eye contact with people and hold a basic conversation, which means that we become even more isolated as a result of that. And our isolation is killing us. Studies show that living in isolation has the same impact as smoking almost an entire pack of cigarettes a day, and it has a greater impact on your health than obesity or even what you eat. Meaning that you could live in biblical community, smoke 15 cigarettes a day, eat whatever you want, and statistically speaking, you would still live longer than a health fanatic who lived in isolation. People who live in community live longer, they get sick less often, they recover 
from sickness faster. They even recover from uh, emotional trauma at, at an amazingly faster rate than those who do not live in community. Uh, we are literally dying from our lack of connection because we don't have any strong bonds in our culture, including that of the family. But my point is uh, that they lived in a culture with strong bonds, and, and these strong bonds were central, and family was everything. We live in a culture thousands of years later in the modern West with weak bonds and weak ties. They lived in a culture of strong bonds and strong ties, and the strongest bond in their culture was that of blood. So when Jesus says, or sorry, when the scriptures say they left everything to follow Jesus, the primary sacrifice in their world would have been that of family. Most of us aren't huge fans of our family of origin, if we're honest. And we were rather excited to move out and leave our families. So we don't see this as a major sacrifice. We call it liberation. But for them, it was a death of sorts. In fact, still to this day, if you were to commit your life to Jesus in a Muslim family or an Orthodox Jewish family, in many cases, they will hold a funeral for you. Because in their eyes and through the lens of their family, you have died. You, you have exited the family. You no longer exist. We jokingly use the phrase, you're dead to me now. In this case, they really mean it. It was a weighty, serious thing. In our culture, family means almost nothing, sadly. But in their culture, it was everything. And so, one of the things that Jesus is doing with this radical call to discipleship is that he's forming a new community, a new family, not based on blood, but based on faith, which is why he says this, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, that was their ultimate sacrifice, will fail to receive many times as much in this age. Same bond, same quality of relationship right here, right now. You're losing one family, but you're gaining a bigger one. In fact, on one occasion when Jesus is healing, his mothers and his brothers actually show up in the midst of it, uh, probably to inform him that he's getting a little bit crazy um, and that he needs to tone down the whole Messiah thing. Um, but, but the crowd says, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're calling for you. In, in other words, the people of your deepest bond and highest allegiance 
are outside and they're pulling that card, okay? They're asking for you. And Jesus responds, who are my mother and my brothers? And you can just picture Peter like raising his hand. Uh, I, Jesus, I don't know if we were clear. They're right out front. Like, I know we've been on the road for a while. Maybe you don't recognize them anymore. Like, here, come let me show you. Jesus continues, those who do the will of God are my what? My mother and my brothers. My new family. One that runs deeper than blood. There's a disorientation from biological family, the strongest bond in a reorientation around the faith community with Jesus at the center. Uh, The first point I want to make today, if you're taking notes, is simply this. The call to discipleship is a call to community. It's a call to family. In fact, we can describe salvation itself in terms of family. You are made right with God through the blood of Jesus and then adopted into God's what? Family. You're adopted into the family of God by the blood of Jesus, which means that the moment you get adopted, you have a new heavenly father. And there's a sense in which he chose you and you chose him. But in the exact same moment, you also gain a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. And you did not choose them. And they did not choose you. But you have the same heavenly father. You're part of the same family. And hence, the primary word used in the New Testament to talk about disciples is actually adelphoi in the Greek, which means brothers and sisters. It's actually used 342 times in the New Testament. And the rest of the New Testament from Jesus forward is going to talk about life in the kingdom with these two assumptions. The New Testament assumes, one, that you're in community, and two, that it's difficult. That's the assumption underlying the entire text. There are no less than 59 different one another commands in the New Testament meaning love one another, honor one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, forgive one another, confess your sins to one another, on and on it goes. And every single one of those carries those dual assumptions. They assume you're in community, and they assume that it's hard. 
I can't think of a single scripture that says followers of Jesus ought to be in community. Because all of scripture assumes that you already are. And they assume it's messy. Why do disciples need to forgive one another? Because they sin against each other. They offend each other. They do things that they ought not to have done. Hence the command. And you can see this in the early church as you read through the letters. And we see it with the 12 disciples as well. I mean, just within the original 12, you have enough diversity to create tension. Thousands of years later, we look back, or I look back, and I think, well, they were 12 Jewish men who were all about the same age. So I'm guessing they were all pretty similar, and they all probably got along pretty well. But, but just as one point of tension among many points of tension, consider this, that among the 12, you have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. And to be clear, a zealot was a violent revolutionary who thought that the way to national freedom, or perhaps even the kingdom of God, was to overthrow their Roman oppressors. Most of them carried knives under their clothing in order to carry out guerrilla warfare attacks on their Roman oppressors. And when the Messiah comes, surely he'll wield a sword and, and I will be right behind him, eager for Roman blood. Then you've got Matthew sitting next to him at breakfast, a Roman tax collector, absolutely despised, the very hand of the enemy. If I'm going to stab somebody, I'm going to start with him first. Can you imagine? I mean, Democrat and Republican is child's play compared to the tensions that existed within this group of 12. And yet Jesus was calling them to forsake their families and to reform their allegiance around this faith community. An incredible diversity coming together in unity around Christ. Can you imagine? They sit down to breakfast and Simon's glaring. Can you pass, pass the bread, Matthew? There's 12 of us here, okay? And, and, and Matthew's thinking, oh, please don't stab me. There was tension among the 12. There were power struggles. They sinned against each other. They argued about who was the greatest. At one point, James and John try to secure positions as the favored disciples who will rule over the other disciples. And they use their mom to do it. 
which is awesome. And it says, when the other disciples found out, they were indignant with them. Meaning they were, they were furious. They were beside themselves. Oh, man, I was going to stab the tax collector. But now, mm, those fishermen could use a good stabbing too. Guys, community is hard. It's really difficult. But the call of Jesus is a call to community. Being saved into the family of God is exactly that. It's being saved into a diverse, totally imperfect family. And the scriptures don't pull any punches on this issue. They don't paint us a picture through rose-colored glasses. They make it clear that the call on your life is a call to community, that community is hard, and finally, that community is necessary. The sad reality is that, that if we don't commit to community, then we aren't going to grow. But because community is messy, we typically withdraw and miss out on the good stuff. We miss out on the growth. People who are way smarter than me point out that it's a low bar, by the way. But people who are much smarter than me point out that every community that forms typically goes through the same predictable stages of development. They typically start with the honeymoon stage. This is uh, when everyone is first coming together, the community is forming, and people are just excited to be there, excited to meet one another. Everything is fresh and new, and people start discovering common ground that they have with others. Oh my gosh, you like coffee? <gasps> I like coffee too. Oh my gosh, did you know that Jen likes coffee? Isn't that amazing? We are like spiritual soulmates. But after a while, that feeling of newness, that excitement, starts to wane. You settle in over a series of weeks or months. You're done talking about coffee. And the second stage is typically boredom. Oh, another Wednesday night. Same people coming over again. We'll probably talk about the same thing we talked about last week. The weather. Her cats. Wow. You know, the, suddenly these people aren't quite as exciting as they used to be. After the boredom stage, typically comes conflict which is where people really settle in and they begin to show their true selves. The mask starts to come off, the walls start to come down, the honeymoon stage is over, and we become increasingly aware of the group's flaws. Why is she always talking about her cats? 
Why does that guy chew so loud? We're six months in, and I'm still the only one doing the dishes? Like, are you serious, guys? And then people start to assert their preferences. And those preferences tend to clash with the preferences of others. John thinks we pray too much. And Susie thinks we do not pray nearly enough. Sarah wants 30 minutes of spontaneous, charismatic worship. And John prefers silent prayer. Stephen thinks we aren't friends unless we bear our souls to one another and share our, our deepest sins and regrets. And Christine comes from a background that makes that really difficult. Megan's a passionate Democrat, and Alex can't stop talking about how Republican she is. Jen likes country music. Are you serious? Oh, I hate country music. Is there even a shred of intelligence in the entire genre? I, I mean, do we have anything in common aside from coffee and Jesus? That's stage three. But as a group pushes past stage three, they typically get into stage four. And this is where the good stuff happens. Stage four is characterized by acceptance. We accept ourselves and our own flaws. We accept the other person and their flaws. Okay, we don't see eye to eye politically or musically or when it comes to cats. Okay, but that's okay. We're brother and sister. And as you move into the acceptance stage, you actually come to this place of accountability and vulnerability, and this is where the good stuff happens. This is where people flourish. This is where people grow. We, we experience the beauty of our diversity, all united under Christ. This is, this is the place in stage four where we are known for who we truly are and loved for who we truly are at the same time. And we accept the other for who they really are. And, and the group begins to flourish. The problem is that most of us never make it past stage two or maybe stage three. We love the honeymoon stage, but when the honeymoon stage is over, we start to get bored and we move on. A new small group, a new church, whatever it is, we, we try to go out and start the honeymoon stage all over again. Or maybe we make it past boredom and into the conflict stage. 
but then we hit that conflict. We feel that frustration. I see the real you. Our preferences begin to collide, and we dip out. Clearly, this small group isn't the one for me because there's conflict here. Because we don't agree on everything in the world. We don't all get along perfectly all the time, so I better move on and find something new. But the, the perfect group, a group free of conflict, actually doesn't exist. It, it's, a, it's a myth, it's an illusion, but we think it exists and it drives us mad. On to the next, on to the next, on to the next. That wasn't the one, that wasn't the one. I have to keep looking. You keep looking for that magical group full of people who are just like you and who think you're awesome at the same time. If only I could find a group full of Democrats who love to talk about their cats or whatever it is. We get bored, we encounter conflict, we bump into differences, and we move on. And it's worth noting that this same pattern plays itself out in romantic relationships as well, and even in marriage. We, f we move from one dating relationship to the next, from one marriage to the next, always looking for that honeymoon stage, always dipping out when things get boring or difficult, never actually experiencing the deeper intimacy and vulnerability and accountability on the other side. We never get to the good stuff because we tend to run and withdraw. We don't like the mess. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to work through conflict and clashing preferences, and so we move on. You know what kills community more than anything else? expectation. It's true in a dating relationship. It's true in a marriage. And it's true in a small group as well. Often we come in with such incredible expectations, which are unrealistic, to the point that we smother, suffocate, judge, choke out, the life that is actually right there in front of us. There's no such thing as a perfect boyfriend or a perfect girlfriend. There's no such thing as a perfect spouse. There's no such thing as a perfect small group. And if there was, you wouldn't be invited because you'd ruin it. Because guess what? You're not perfect. 
If you go into a dating relationship or a marriage or a small group experience thinking, wow, this person or these people are perfect, and therefore, this should only be awesome, then you're going to grow discontent, frustrated, critical, restless, and your attitude and your expectations will poison the beautiful thing that God has for you. You will poison the life that is right in front of you. On the other hand, if you go in thinking, this is going to be hard, it's going to be messy, but Christ is in it, and I will become more like Christ through it then you will have an entirely different experience. Bless you. You might actually experience life that is truly life. And this is the flip side. If you're willing to embrace community as it actually is, if you can accept yourself in your imperfection, and accept others in their imperfection, then community actually becomes home. It becomes this place of safety and security and freedom and healing and growth. And in today's world, we need community more than ever. I grew up uh, in a very loving atheist home. I self-identified as an atheist. Uh, I thought Christians were weird, backward, outdated, and just wrong. Until I went off to college at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I basically ended up in, in a small group uh, Bible study, uh, much like uh, the missional communities that we have here at the church. And it was in that context uh, of a loving small group that I felt loved, I felt accepted, I felt I had a place there, even though I had almost no idea what they were talking about. And, and it set the stage for me to stay and stick around and begin wrestling with the tough questions. Does God actually exist? Are, are the scriptures accurate? Are, are they true? How would you know? What, what does it mean to have faith? But after enough wrestling, I came to this place of encountering Jesus. And I gave my life to him. And from that moment forward, over the course of about three months, I grew exponentially. My entire life started to change. Uh, my sense of, of hope and purpose changed 180 degrees. My sense of worth and value. I had a personal relationship with this God who loved me. My lifestyle changed. I stopped getting drunk. I, I gave up all of the, the brokenness that came along with that 
lifestyle. I had to quit all of that stuff. I was a new creation. The old was passing away, and, and I was just growing leaps and bounds in my discipleship in a very short amount of time. In the context of, of this tight-knit small group, this place where I felt loved and accepted. I was on fire for God for those three months. But about three months later, uh, summer hit and everybody scattered. And the following year, when everyone was headed back to school, I chose to study abroad in India. And then I kept studying abroad. Uh, over and over again for, for the following years until I graduated from college. And so after graduation, I went out and got a job and you know, got my first apartment and was all of a sudden in this very different world, and I was reflecting back on my college experience. And as I was reflecting back and thinking about it, I realized that I had grown more in three months than in the following three years combined. And, and, and I didn't feel that, that fire anymore. I, w I was just flatlined. I wasn't going anywhere. And, and so I decided, hey, I, I want that fire back again. And so I did uh, the only thing I knew to, to do, and that's I went out and got a Bible, my first Bible. Uh, I had actually never owned a Bible. I'd never read the Bible outside of, like, the printed verses they would hand out in Bible study. So I got my first Bible. And I did what anyone would do, which is just to open up to the first page and start reading. I thought, like, I, I got to figure out what's in here. I got to read this. So I started on page one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I just started reading through. And those of you who have read the Bible cover to cover, you know that if you commit to doing that, God's going to speak to you. He's going to speak to you through that experience. He's going to shape you. He's going to change you. And I've noticed every time I read through the Bible, God speaks something different. The text hasn't changed, but I've changed. And what God wants to speak to me has changed as well. And I still remember that very first time that I read through Scripture, and I remember what God was speaking to me. And, and he was speaking it in a way that was, that was so clear, that was so obvious. It was so loud, in a sense. It was leaping up off the pages of Scripture. And the thing that God was speaking to me was, was very simple. I realized, I can't do this alone. And, and you... Start with the opening pages, and, and it says things are good and good and very good. And then you read that it's not good for the man to be alone. And, and here I was alone in my room with a Bible. No community no Christian friends. In fact, I was the only follower of Jesus in my family and the only person in my entire friend group following Jesus. And, and I had fallen under the impression 
that this was something I had to do alone. Though none go with me, still I will follow. That, that was the mantra of my early years, following after Jesus. I was accustomed to being the only follower of Jesus in the room. But it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And then you keep reading, and God calls Noah, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, but they're never alone. They're always in a community. Their whole family is committed to following the way of God. And I thought, wow, I've never experienced that. I don't know what that's like. That is so far removed from my experience. And then Jacob is renamed Israel and, and, and it turns into a community and eventually an entire nation state that is following after God together. And, and I was knee deep in Deuteronomy and I realized, wow, all of this stuff is about life together. God never calls individuals to follow him in isolation. I wasn't meant to do this alone. And, and it was like this giant light bulb went off. I'd never thought that before. I never realized that. And it sent me on this journey to find my first church and eventually to find a church that had small groups. And, and I've been living in that context of small group community ever since. And guess what? It's really hard. I haven't had a small group that was easy. But I've never been under the impression that they should be. And I'm introverted, so community is not my first impulse. And I don't like being busy, so there are plenty of weeks that come when, when I wish that wasn't a recurring event on my calendar. And I've gone through seasons of depression in which I didn't want to see anyone, let alone host a small group in my living room. There's nothing in my nature that, that drives me toward small group community. But I do it as a practice, as a discipline, because I know that if I don't, I'll miss out. I won't be challenged and I won't grow. And so I fight against my introversion. I push past stages of boredom and conflict and clashing preferences. I fight through seasons of depression 
when my impulse is just to withdraw. I, I fight the impulse to put my best foot forward. And, and I opt instead for vulnerability and authenticity. I set aside, and this is hard to do as a perfectionist, I set aside my unrealistically high expectations of what a Jesus-centered community should look like and, and choose to engage in what is. The imperfection, the messiness, because I know there is life in this practice. Jesus calls us into community. He saves us into a family. Jesus himself needed community. Did you ever think about that? We do too. Every human being needs that place of acceptance. That place of being known and loved at the same time. And the people who stay experience this type of life. And the people who stay become more like Jesus over time. In a culture of isolation, in a culture of individualism, in the face of our own fears, we embrace the messiness, the imperfection, the difficulty of it all because we believe that there is life in this practice that can't be found anywhere else. Let's pray.